This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. And yes, we are working from home, as I suspect many of you are sheltering in place, not going outside much, because as we are learning, as the data continues to unfold nationwide and in the hardest hit metropolitan areas, social distancing, adhering to stay at home guidelines, and in some cases orders, is making a positive difference in terms of fewer hospitalizations, fewer patients in intensive care, and fewer deaths, though the numbers of all three of those categories remain startling. We're going to have a conversation this week about the entire national response. What is a federal emergency management response look like at times like this? What's working? What needs to be reevaluated? What is a failure? If anything is a failure, our special guest, Craig Fugate, who for the entire Obama administration, if memory serves, was the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Craig is coming to us from Gainesville, Florida. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for being with us, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. So you were the FEMA director of the entire Obama administration, correct? Yeah, I got there in May of 2009 and served through the inauguration. Uh, so I was there for the majority of both terms. All right, let's start with a very big 30,000-foot question, Craig. Uh, from your vantage point and based on your experience, what has worked well in this coronavirus response from the federal level? What needs much more work? And if anything, in your opinion, what has failed? Well, I think Using ex- existing tools that governors were familiar with, like FEMA, uh, was a good start. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of debate about should we have started earlier, what we could have done differently. I've been more focused on what we could do to change the outcome. Uh, but one of the things that FEMA brings to the table is a familiarity that governors know uh, how to interface and work with FEMA. It's not a new uh, program to them. And uh, we had actually looked at FEMA's role in pandemics as far back as 2009, uh, as we were preparing for H1N1. Uh, so uh, in many cases, we saw that FEMA would be primarily the best tool the federal government had to coordinate the consequences of the impacts of a pandemic, uh, thinking that a lead federal agency like Health and Human Services would be leaving the medical piece of that. That's where the national pharmaceutical stockpiles reside, uh, that's where a lot of the expertise would reside, and that FEMA would be essentially a support to the federal agencies as well as to the governors. 
So I want to talk to you about a word you mentioned that I know is on the minds of many Americans, and it comes up in almost every single coronavirus briefing, stockpile. What is it? Where is it? And is it many places? And is it an actual thing, or is it something that we create to deal with a certain situation? I'm kind of fuzzy on all those things. It actually exists. It has stuff in it, and it's in locations around the country. This goes all the way back to, if you remember, the sarin gas attacks in Tokyo and the concern that was raised that in a chemical or biological terrorist attack, many communities would not have the antidotes or drugs required to treat those patients. So the origin of the national pharmaceutical stockpiles or the strategic stockpiles as they're called now, was really preparing for biological and chemical. It was then later added to nuclear as well as the results of 9-11, burn, blast, and crush injuries. Uh, it also was augmenting the, the uh, ability to respond to natural hazards, such as hurricanes and earthquakes. But it was never built for a pandemic. It was seen as a package that could go out quickly to geographically defined areas that had maybe had an anthrax attack or a natural hazard that had resulted in large casualties. And it would be push packages that could go out quickly to augment the local capabilities. It also, in planning for pandemics, would serve as the initial capability of the federal government to go out the door. But it was never stocked nor funded to be the major capabilities for a pandemic, knowing that as it moved, moved through the country, you'd have tremendous demand, particularly as we saw for PPE and other critical devices like ventilators. And that's why it was often seen as just the first step that the federal government would have to follow up with the ability for the federal government to do very large procurement. And if the procurement process wouldn't work, use tools such as the Defense Production Act to be able to uh, get materials and direct industry to produce those items that would be needed. So when the president says, as he has on more than one occasion, the shelves were empty, the state's cupboards were bare, and we are a backup, evaluate all three of those statements in relationship to what you were just describing. Well, let's go back to the Great Recession. Starting about 2008, 2009, as the recession hit and the economy was going south, state and local government revenues were being slashed. So a lot of the capability that had been built up with funding from Congress to build capability for terrorist attacks started to erode as states were no longer able to maintain that. At the same time, we saw significant cuts at the federal level to Homeland Security funding for a lot of this equipment. And as sequestration kicks in, we saw even further cuts to federal agencies and federal budgets. So we went through uh, probably one of the biggest reductions in public health capacity as a nation as a result of that recession, and then further exasperated by the further cuts that occurred in health and human services and other programs during sequestration, and really had not come out of that, nor have been able to rebuild a lot of that capacity that we had built up after 9-11. And also under Bush 43, President Bush had made pandemics a big issue in his administration. And so a lot of that work that was started then uh, was continued, but then the budgets uh, crashed. And so, yeah, I think we have to go back to the impacts on the budget and the, the recession on state and local public health capacity cuts that were made there, cuts that were made at the federal level, and then the lingering impacts of sequestration. 
And I want to remind our audience what sequestration is. It was a bipartisan agreement about the budget. There was a certain federal allocation number that had to be hit for the budget every year. And if you didn't hit that, you'd have automatic across-the-board spending cuts. And so to meet those numbers, lots of things were not included or their budgets were shrank to meet those federal budget numbers. I want to play you a soundbite, Craig, from Jared Kushner, who's had one appearance and one appearance only at these task force briefings, and it's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Arden, that's soundbite number one. You also have a situation where in some states, FEMA allocated ventilators to the states, and you have instances where in cities they're running out, but the state still has a stockpile. And the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. So, Craig, help us understand this distinction, if there is one, our stockpile versus state stockpiles. I, I really don't understand that. Um, and I think part of the problem is we're talking about local, state, and federal as we're somehow all separate. We are by law, but we're all in this together, and we should be looking at ours as plural to all of this. Again, part of the whole idea of the stockpiles was not for a federal response per se, but to augment local response when they were overwhelmed. And again, remember, this was designed for terrorist attacks, natural hazards, very geographically focused impacts that would overwhelm local hospitals, overwhelm local resources. States had built some stockpiles, but again, we saw a lot of that eroded. And the idea being that the normal procurement process wouldn't be fast enough. You needed to get stuff in, which meant it had to be ready to go, packaged for shipping. And we've done exercises with these stockpiles, particularly for getting out uh, medications and, 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 again, looking at things like an anthrax attack, how quickly we could distribute drugs. So it was never, as far as I remember the program, designed to be something that would not be shared with the states and local governments based upon need. But I think there's also, and it, it could just be the way it was being phrased, that right now FEMA's having to look at states' current resources versus where they're seeing demand that those resources aren't and sometimes making very hard decisions about where equipment's going. But if you go back to the original creation of these, they were always seen as push packages to go to the local government, to go to the local hospitals that were being overwhelmed in an attack or in a disaster. That's the voice of Craig Fugate, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a moment. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Welcome back. Our special guest, Craig Fugate, who was head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, during the entire Obama administration. And for those in our audience who say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that must mean he's a Democrat or a big Obama lover and a big Trump hater. Hold your horses. Just calm down. Listen to Craig and understand that his first significant role in public life was as the head of Florida's emergency management agency appointed by Republican Governor Jeb Bush. And I just want to say this, or ask you this, Craig. Uh, In general, emergency management is not a partisan exercise, is it? No, disasters don't really care about your affiliation. (laughs) They don't. Um, And they hit Democrats and Republicans equally. And, you know, I I worked for uh, uh, Governor Bush, for a number of years and Governor Chris, and then I went to work for the Obama administration. And the way we've always approached it was based upon need. Uh, I have the pleasure or displeasure of saying yes, but also no to both sides of the aisle on governor's request. And I've, I've drawn the ire of Democrats and Republicans about as equally as, as they thanked us for their assistance. But, you know, our approach to this, and, and again, emergency managers, we don't have the luxury of the politics. Our focus is on people and impacts and need. And we try to make those decisions based upon that. It doesn't mean we always say yes, but it isn't based upon your affiliation. It's based upon how bad the impacts are, whether it warrants federal disaster declaration. And if it does, we're coming. And I want to get to that uh, question or issue that you just raised, Craig, about need and governors understanding what their need is and understanding how to forward legitimate requests to the federal government, because Jared Kushner also talked about that. But I want to go back to something and just to underscore it for our audience, because I think when we're trying to evaluate as a country what has worked and hasn't worked, we have to also appreciate that this is a different kind of scenario than FEMA has typically been organized to address. As Craig mentioned, I just want to underscore this. Think about it this way. Wildfires in my home state of California, hurricanes along the Gulf Coast, they are significant events in a significant geographic area where things are overwhelmed. When you have a national situation, a pandemic that stretches from coast to coast, all things are being stretched, all things are being stressed, and even if they're not being stressed, there is a legitimate concern about future stressing, which puts a lot of pressure on supplies and logistics. Yeah, this was when we began planning for H1N1 was the thing that I think was most difficult for a lot of folks to get wrap their heads around. It would be all 50 states and territories pretty much all together. And then a lot of our tools in major disasters wouldn't work. Uh, we commonly uh, have states sharing resources. We're seeing a little bit of this now with California freeing up ventilators to go to other states because they have, a, a thing a little bit better handle on managing their, their numbers and understand that they could release some of that. But we see significant mutual aid between non-impacted states to areas of impact. We see tremendous response from volunteer agencies like Red Cross, Salvation Army, and a lot of the others like Team Rubicon, who can pull people out of unimpacted areas, go to the area of impact. The military is generally able through National Guard deployments and also our, our active duty. It's different in a pandemic. Well, first of all, in this pandemic, people are the vector. So moving people is a problem all by itself. Second thing is we're already seeing where the military is being impacted by COVID-19 as much as the general population. And there is various phases as we're watching different states going through, you know, the peaks early. Other states are still about to see those peaks that we can do some limited shifting around. 
but it's not going to be where we can put all our focus on a New York City or all our focus on the initial California and Seattle. Uh, we're seeing cities that two weeks ago didn't have significant caseload that are exploding. And so that's the big challenge is you're going to have to maximize what you've got, where you've got it. Uh, and that's why it was also key for the federal government to take a major role in procurement uh, because the types and numbers of supplies we're going to need would dwarf any previous event we've dealt with. Understood. I want to play the second soundbite from Jared Kushner because it also attracted a good deal of tension and it goes to this issue of governors knowing what they need. The way that the federal government's trying to allocate is they're trying to make sure, A, you have your data, right? Don't ask us for things when you know that, when you don't know what you have in your own state, just because you're scared, you ask your medical, medical professionals and they don't know. You have to take inventory of what you have in your own state and then you have to be able to show that there's a real need. Is that true, Greg? Well, ideally, we would be using the best data to make decisions. I would caveat that, however. By the time we know there's a need, it's too late. Uh, we know because we don't have enough testing, and the fact that by the time we start seeing cases present in a hospital requiring advanced life support, that the number's gonna grow quickly if we have not been doing social distancing. And so, you know, my approach, and I, and I think this is the challenge when you can't manage what you don't have, it's one of the huge issues we're dealing with. Until we have enough resources. But I also think this this is not a just-in-time or just-enough type response. You know, as the federal government ramps up production, they need to go to a push mode. If we're waiting for governors to be able to demonstrate there's an absolute need for ventilators, we've already lost. Um, so the challenge is FEMA can only manage what FEMA has, which is too short. So they're having to make some very hard choices, try to make the best judgment calls of where to send things based upon what's available and where we're at. But ideally, we get to the point where we now can push and not wait for the numbers to get bad because, as we saw in New York, playing catch-up doesn't work in a pandemic. So, it, and again, we're not there yet, but as we get better response, we get more resources moving through the system. You know, FEMA's running an air bridge and just flying in vast quantities of stuff from China, the point to where we can push things out versus a demand signal that is sometimes very late in telling us what the needs will be, and then we see the spike in patients. Related to all that, Craig, is the question of testing. And I know you have some thoughts on that. I want to play you a soundbite from the president at the uh, April 6th coronavirus task force briefing. Arden, that's number four. States can do their own testing. States are supposed to be doing testing. Hospitals are supposed to be doing testing. Do you understand that? We're the federal government. Listen to me. We're the federal government. We're not supposed to stand on street corners doing testing. They go to doctors. They go to hospitals. They go to the state. Evaluate that for my audience, will you please? Well, ideally, if we'd had from uh, early on a good testing uh, regimen, if we'd had the approval from the federal agencies of what the test needed to do, yes. I mean, part of the part of the whole deal, idea of FEMA declaring this disaster and pushing money out the door states is to get them to take on what they can and more of it. But our challenge is, is making sure we have a uniform testing. We've seen where some tests give less positive results than others, but we need also more rapid testing. So as the labs are developing the better test, the federal government is really the guidelines. Uh, and where we can come up with these are the tests, these are guidelines, these are the manufacturers, and states can do that, great. If it requires federal procurement, great. 
Um, I'm less concerned about who's doing it as we need to do it because until we get to the point where we can test large numbers of people on demand with rapid results, it's going to be very difficult to move past social distancing as our primary tool. And I caution people that think that if we peak or the numbers flatten out, it's going to get better. It just means it's slowing down. But if we let up too quickly and we don't have testing, it will blow back up and we'll see the numbers skyrocket again. That sounds to me, Craig, like you're thinking that this is a potential danger because already there's conversation. The president talks about it with some regularity. We got to open back up. We got to get going. The country wasn't meant to be this way. And there's a sense of, well, okay, the 30 days to slow the spread, end of April, May 1, it all goes back. It doesn't seem realistic to me that we can go back to normal on May 1, listening to what you just said and what others have said. Until we have a vaccine, the way I describe this, people, is this is like a forest fire. We may get control of it, but it's not out. And if we let down our guard, it will come screaming out again and burn even more things down. And the only way to put this fire out or put this virus out is to vaccinate enough people so it can't continue to spread. Now, what we may be able to do, particularly if we can get more testing, is to start bringing parts of the economy back where people have tested positive, they have the antibiotics, they've gotten over it and they're well enough to go back to work, or we can test people to make sure they're not sick and bring them back on and start bringing some things back. And I agree, we need to do that. But if we don't have testing, we're not able to manage that. The risk will be we let our guard down, people start going back to normal activities, we are not maintaining social distancing and it flares back up again uncontrollably um, we saw in the Spanish pandemic or the, the 1918 uh, flu that the second wave was actually deadlier than the first wave. So until we have a vaccine, this will not be going back to normal. That's the voice of Craig Fugate. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Working from home like most of us are. Craig Fugate is our special guest, former FEMA Director, Federal Emergency Management Agency for the entire Obama administration, head of Florida's Emergency Management Department under Republican Governor Jeb Bush before that. Uh, Craig, as you well know, uh, consistency of communication in times like this is vital. How would you evaluate the president and his administration on that score? Yeah, it's just, it, it's a challenge, and I think the, the, the tendency to have mixed messaging uh, is confusing things. And, and, and again, as, as challenging it is to communicate about uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus, we also are in flood and storm season. We have hurricane season come up, and, hur- and earthquakes don't have a season. Uh, and, again, I think this is our challenge. How do we talk about all of this, but also remind people we may still be dealing with other disasters? Right. And – on that, let's talk about a couple of things. The cloth mask or face mask messaging. It was one thing for a while, then it's another thing now. Now it's embedded in CDC recommendations on essential workers. How would you evaluate that? You know, I take my guidance from CDC. I look to them. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to see much of them, but their guidance is really, you know, the whole time that I was at FEMA, that they were the federal agency that was the coordinating body for working with state health on what the recommendations would be during pandemics or other disease outbreaks. So I know a lot of people watch a lot of press conferences. We have a lot of people out there talking about this. I go back to the authoritative source 
and that is the CDC and their guidance. Would you have preferred or would you have recommended a more constant visibility of CDC? Because Dr. Redfield only appears on an occasion at these briefings, and it doesn't feel, as someone who's watching them on a daily basis, that CDC is the front and center of this response or these sets of guidelines. Well, that's something that, um, you know, how we had planned for it and my relationship of working with CDC, supporting them as, again, FEMA was not really envisioned to take over these types of responses, but to support that lead federal agency uh, with the with the capabilities we had and support governors. Uh, but all of our planning was around the subject matter experts were, sub, were who we would turn to for what those recommendations were. And I know working for Governor Bush when we were dealing with anthrax, working for President Obama when we were dealing with Ebola, uh, they took their guidance from their health experts and they used that in their talking points. Uh, they amplified those messages and it gave us a lot of clarity because all of the messaging was essentially reinforcing the same thing. We didn't get off into other things. The tendency is when you're in these discussions and you start talking about other possibilities, now people are questioning, well, is this what we should be doing? Is that's what we should be doing? And the thing that I always marveled at was the ability of, of Governor Bush and President Obama to get the experts take that information, distill it down to the key points to amplify that message and support the efforts that needed to be done to control or manage that event. As you well know, Craig, the president for a couple of days was talking about Easter as a point of reopening the country. He said in retrospect, it was aspirational. It sounded like a big heavyweight hope for him at the time he was saying it in terms of message consistency and sending signals from the highest office in the land. Evaluate that. Well, again, I think this is something that we've heard from the other experts, and that is the timelines will be set by the virus, not by us. And I, again, I'm a bit concerned that people, you know, we're trying to share good news because this has been so tragic and the loss of lives that maybe we're getting to the flattening of the curve or maybe it's getting better. Uh, and that people think, well, good, we'll be able to stop social distancing. And I, and I think it's going to be more and more of a challenge as this plays out to maintain social distancing, knowing that it's wrecking the economy, but it buys time to keep the healthcare system up to be able to treat people and reduces the spread. But it will not be over till we have a vaccine. And the best we can hope for till the vaccine is a good rapid test that we can do on a scale we've never seen before to start putting people back into the workplace. Uh, but for many folks, uh, that's not going to be possible. I mean, I, I kind of look at this as when we start reopening restaurants successfully without causing the disease to, to flare up again, we're at a good point. Speaking of restaurants, within uh, federal emergency or state emergency management circles, you are well known and kind of lionized for the Waffle House test. Uh, for those in my audience who are not familiar with it, tell them briefly what it is and then apply it if there is any applicable way to this scenario. Sure. The Waffle House Index and Waffle House restaurants operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They close for nothing except for disasters. And our observation after a bunch of hurricanes was if you got there and the Waffle House was open with a full menu, even if you had visible damage, it's probably not that bad. Keep going. If you got there and the Waffle House was open but had a limited menu, they probably lost power, had other infrastructure uh, impacts. It's probably an area that we're going to need more mass care, but keep going. If you get to the area where the Waffle House is closed because of the disaster damaged or they couldn't get in or couldn't get it up and running, that's a pretty bad area to go to work. 
And it was, it was used as a shorthand because we would push into areas, particularly after hurricanes, not waiting for assessments. And Waffle Houses were always one of the first things to be open or hadn't even closed, gave us good indicators of basically uh, not everything, but a good quick look at how that area had been hit. So for the coronavirus, uh, you know, people asked me about that. I said, well, if the, if the Waffle House is open and serving, uh, you know, wash your hands, don't shake hands, uh, and maintain your social distancing. But most Waffle Houses have actually moved to condition yellow. They're open and serving, but only takeout. And then uh, Waffle Houses also had to close restaurants, either because their staff were sick or they were under orders to close. And so that would be red. Uh, but again, it's a, it's, it's kind of an indicator of the macro level impact when you see a chain that in the South particularly is just known for its resiliency to get open or stay open, that it's even impacting their operations. You know, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is the chief coordinator of the Coronavirus Task Force on the health side, has mentioned at the podium a couple of times that in her entire service in public health, she's never seen the military mobilized as it has been in this event. Do you agree with that? And can you bring to my audience a perspective on how rare it is to see the military engaged as it has been so far? Well, I don't know about their numbers. Uh, we saw significant military response to Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we're definitely seeing a lot of mobilization of medical assets. Uh, but again, we saw huge numbers of troops and others deployed for security and other missions after Katrina. And part of this is to the governor's National Guard. We tend to think of that as the military, but when they're under the governor, they're actually part of the state forces. Uh, so the Department of Defense uh, is probably not at the levels they were yet for maybe a Katrina response, but they're definitely there on the health side. But we have to remember, unlike the hurricanes where the Department of Defense was relatively intact, we, we are seeing COVID-19 on ships. We're seeing it on military bases. We're already seeing where uh, organizations are having to discontinue training. The Marine Corps had to stop the intake of boots. Uh, so this is not just where the militaries uh, are, you know, is going to be our number one backup. Uh, they, they have the, you know, the dual role of defending the nation and then the domestic support to civilian authorities is what we call this kind of response. At the same time, they are dealing with COVID-19's ability to perform those two missions. And the defending the country is the primary mission. And uh, in the minute we have remaining in this segment, Greg, uh, the president often talks about, I can't issue a federal order. I don't want to issue a federal order. Most of these powers on stay-at-home guidelines or orders come and reside with governors, correct? Yeah, it's our constitution. Uh, all the power is not reserved to the federal government, belongs to the states and the people. And the primary things the federal government had was defense, uh, you know, foreign powers, the interstate commerce. But a lot of the public health and, and what people call police powers, the ability to enforce curfews, the ability to quarantine people, a lot of these authorities are in the state constitutions vested in their Department of Health. So, again, as we had planned for a lot of disasters, uh, we find that governors have tremendous authorities in an emergency and that the federal government was best to support that versus preempt that. And I remember uh, debates between uh, President Bush and Governor Bush, his brother, over who should be taking over in a bad hurricane. And, and the governor said that would be the worst thing to ever happen. And there's also another reason. 
While it may seem to be efficient for the federal government to take over, it's not resilient. Our founding fathers did not build an efficient government. They built a resilient government that 50 states and their ability to manage this uh, with federal assistance versus the federal government having to do this in every state means that we actually have a chance. That's the voice of Craig Fugate, our special guest. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just a moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Craig Fugate, our special guest. He was head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency for the entire Obama administration. Before that, head of Federal Federal of Florida's Emergency Management Agency under Republican Governor Jeb Bush. Craig, I want to talk to you about a couple of things I've heard um, economists and social scientists talk about, but I think are relevant to your experience and this situation we're all living through. One, and uh, Dr. Burks has talked about this several times, the burden of disease and need and I've talked to, I've listened to a couple of uh, economists who specialize in urban e- economies. The devils within density. Uh, talk about both of those concepts in terms of emergency management generally and this pandemic specifically. Well, you know, as we saw in New York City when Sandy hit there, I think it was really hard for people to wrap their head around the density of the population in New York City. Um, some of my planners were planning on putting in. Uh, distribution points every couple of miles. Well, that works on the Gulf Coast, uh, where you may be serving tens of thousands of people. But in New York City, you'd literally be talking about millions of people. And so I think, one, the density of population and the dependency on very uh, fixed supply chains means any disruptions have a magnitude that we wouldn't see in other parts of the country. And that further is example of disease spread and other things. But something else that I think we, we kind of talk around, but is evident in this as well as other types of crisis. Poverty is a uh, reality that will affect outcomes for many. Lack of resources, lack of access to healthcare, uh, the ability to have the resilience to deal with this. And I think that we don't like, you know, we talk about disasters as, as it's hitting us all equally. And I wish that was true, but it's not disasters and this pandemic are hitting poor people, people of color, at harder rates, at higher rates of death than more affluent parts of the communities. Right. And that has an economic aspect to it, but it also has a health aspect to it. Uh, There has been a lot of commentary in more recent days during the Corona Task Force briefings about how underlying health conditions are more prevalent among those and the African-American community and those who are experiencing poverty, asthma, heart disease, diabetes, other things, all of which, if you have them, coronavirus, COVID-19, lands harder and sometimes with much more fatal results. This is what you're talking about. Absolutely. I remember President Bush talking about, you know, our best defense against bioterrorism is a healthy population. And that's true for pandemics and a lot of other things we face. Um, and again, the economic disparities, the lack of access to health care, the lack of access to preventative health care, the lack of access to good nutrition will all be contributing factors of why some segments of the population will be hit harder. Um, it's, it's always been true. It's not something people like to talk about, but disasters are not equal. Poverty and lack of resources 
means greater impacts, loss of life, and less ability to successfully recover. What's your opinion of inspectors general within the federal government? You know, I dealt with inspector generals. They had their job and I had my job. But without them, we're never sure what's going on. Uh, Too often I dealt with inspector generals who I said, look, if I'm breaking the law, send me the justice. If it's an accounting error, we'll pay the bill. If it's a difference of opinion, then I'll defer to Congress. And if Congress tells me I broke the law, we have something to talk about. But the role of the inspector generals is to be that independent eye in the agencies looking for things, looking for waste, fraud, abuse, but most importantly, I think, was looking at how we could do things better. I always felt much more comfortable when the IG sat down with me and said, you got all these problems. I said, great, what do you recommend me do? And they came up with recommendations. But this idea that we will self-police ourselves in the federal government, the bureaucracy, just, I don't trust it. And as much as I had my battles with IGs, the IG serves the American public by being that independent eye looking, researching, checking, measuring to ensure the best management of the programs with the best possible outcomes. It isn't always about finding the mistakes, but it is about looking at how to do things better and more efficiently. Agencies will try to do that, but my experience tells me without that outside independent review, we miss opportunities, mistakes go and don't get corrected, and we don't build the efficiencies and protect our resources in the most appropriate way. Recently, the president has suggested politics might have played a role in an inspector general report from the Department of Health and Human Services. Evaluate that, and do you think there's anything uh, reckless or dangerous about that kind of rhetoric? Well, the independence of the inspector general um, was to hold them above politics and party affiliation. You would like to think that's never a factor. My experience has been... um, from people on, that had been appointed previous administrations, people appointed in the current administration was uh, pretty much above board. And I didn't always like what they were telling me, but I didn't think it was coming because of their politics. But that's always a judgment call. And I think there's a tendency when you don't like their answer to find something to, to, to diminish what they're telling you. But again, this was the whole idea of the independence of the IGs was to hold them above the political fray, above the affiliations, that their only really affiliation is back to the country and the taxpayers and the programs and the services they deliver. Um, So again, I think we've seen this before where we've attacked bureaucracies and bureaucrats and we use terms to uh, refer to them as something not good or a problem until we need them. Right. One last thing I want to have you evaluate. Uh, The president and some on his team make reference to corporations with some frequency. uh, And there have been those who observe, boy, it seems almost like a commercial at times. I'm sure you've been in situations where corporations have involved themselves in a response in a positive and visible way. Is there a fine line there or in a situation like this, do you just give them credit for doing what they're doing? And if it feels or sounds like a commercial, so what? Yeah, I give them credit. Uh, one, one of the things I learned in Florida was we have this tendency to do what I call government-centric problem solving in a disaster, uh, as if government has all the answers. And the bigger the disaster, the more I found the private sector was really a key part of that, whether it was the grocery stores, gas stations, pharmacies, the utility companies. 
And so I really thought that we should be broadening our definition of the team to include the private sector in the planning. Uh, we went so far in Florida to create an area for the various state associations of industries, retailers to sit in our state emergency operations center. We did conference calls with them. And when I got the FEMA, we continued that. Uh, so part of this is building a total federal response. We call it the whole of government and the whole of community. So again, we, I, I can tell you right now, uh, some of our best partners was people like FedEx opening up their airfields to distribution centers for FEMA and disasters nobody even you know cared about except for the people that got hit. You know, Walmart, Target, and others helping redirect supplies in the areas to help meet shortfalls. So, you know, is advertising for them not as much as acknowledging the fact that without the private sector, we can't respond to big disasters. And, you know, again, I, there's always this uh, concern that we're going to be promoting them. But if we're being factual of what they're doing, I think people should understand that it took the entire team to get things moving. And um, so recognizing them, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, the challenge is recognizing all of them. <laughs> I bet so. That's the voice of Craig Fugate. For our radio audience, that ends this episode of The Takeout. But we urge you to go to our podcast platform to find the remainder of this conversation with Craig Fugate. Back for that, and the, the, which is The Takeout Especial, in a moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, working from home, as most of us are. Also working from home, Craig Fugate, uh, former head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency in the Obama administration before that, the Florida Emergency Management Agency under Republican Governor Jeb Bush. Uh, Craig, uh, he's talking to us from his, uh, I believe, study in Gainesville, Florida, I'm in the dining room, by the way. My apartment's not big enough for a study. I just have a dining room that kind of looks semi-like a study. Uh, Craig, the president said um, when uh, asked about his comments about COVID-19 in January and February, which I think by any rational measure could be fairly described as, if not dismissive, that we've got this under control and it's not going to be a big problem. It's turned out to be a much bigger problem. He said in response to a question about that, I'm a cheerleader for this country. Um, presidents are, but can that sometimes be a hazard when we don't know as much as we need to know? Well, what I've learned is that if you don't know what you don't know, you got to be very careful about having definitive statements. We saw this with Ebola, where you know the initial reports was, yes, we're going to bring patients back, but it's not going to spread. We're going to be able to treat those patients safely. And then we had two nurses become infected from a patient. And now everybody's going, well, what do you mean? This is spreading. Why didn't, why didn't we do something different? Uh, so we learned that you have to be very careful to try to maintain uh, uh, even keel here of what we know and what we don't know. Uh, but if you go back to a lot of the people that were talking in, in January and February, there were a lot of assumptions about our ability to contain this, to test it, to uh, manage it. There was a lot of confidence across many agencies that that would happen. Um, there were those internally that were worried because there was always the kind of the statements, we will probably be able to contain this, but we don't know what we don't know. And we were still learning how rapidly this would spread. Uh, we weren't aware initially of how many people had already come back into the United States that had traveled both from 
uh, China, but all. Uh, so I think the early optimism was probably based upon our thoughts of how we could contain this. But if you listen to the experts, they always put in there that pause, but we're not sure, or we'll have to see. Or if we don't get this, it could be bad, and we need to start thinking about that. So I think that's part of your challenge where you want to reassure people. At the same time, you still don't know what you don't know. And that's a tricky thing to communicate. Tell my audience what it should look for in the next two to four weeks. And if you have in your mind, as you've gone through these exercises in real time and also tabletops, what the metrics might be to suggest we're doing the right things and making progress. Well, we'll know, we'll know it when the curves start flattening. Uh, we have seen that uh, one of the interesting things I saw, because I do some work on the West Coast, was how in San Francisco and the Valley and then up in Seattle, uh, big tech companies canceled conferences very soon after it was realized it was spreading at conferences. And then they began moving towards work from home well before there were actually any stay-at-home orders. Uh, the, the governments there, particularly the public health, then followed that up with the stay-at-home orders, closing down essential, non-essential functions. And while they had earlier cases and widespread early cases, it had not reached the type of rapid increase we've seen in other parts of the country. So I think what we got to watch for is social distancing is probably about a two to three week lag time between the time we start it before we see the numbers start to come down. But it doesn't mean it's over. It just means it's slowing down and is more manageable. And I think the real challenge over the next couple of weeks will be can we establish conditions where it's safe to begin cranking up parts of the economy that have been idled? Uh, but we have to be very careful that in doing that, we don't make the problem worse. Uh, I think there are several things like testing and uh, better protocols that will be needed. We may see parts of the country be able to move back to getting some things back online. In other parts of the country, we're still seeing things being impacted. Like most recently, as this has moved into rural America, a lot of the agricultural production, particularly meatpacking plants, uh, processing facilities, are now starting to be impacted as the disease has reached their workforce and they're having to close or limit their production. Describe what the summer looks like based on all the things you have looked at and tried to appraise. Are we at beaches? Is there Major League Baseball? Do we have a college football season? All things that are kind of important in Florida, but nationwide. I think we're going to have a staycation. We'll be vacationing at home. All summer. Um, pretty much. I think the question will be, do we have enough testing capability? You know, the thing about sports, particularly like college football, uh, they're going to put in the safety of the players as the first premium. The second will be the safety of fans. So the question will be, is there enough capability in testing? Are we far enough along where maybe the teams can start practicing and maybe the teams will be able to play, but we don't have the stands full of fans. We have to televise it. Or do we get to the point where we have enough comfort that our levels are low enough in areas that we can do that? But I think what will happen is, is it starts coming down and we start moving back to uh, not the old way, but perhaps what we should call our, our new way of dealing with this. There may be areas that will have flare-ups and we'll have to go back into extreme social distancing, shutting down and isolating, while other parts of the country will have more freedom. Uh, but again, this is all contingent upon we flatten the curve, we make it manageable, and we get a vaccine that is effective. 
And just getting the vaccine is only the first step. The second step is vaccinating enough people that we now have produced enough immunity where it can no longer continue to spread like it's doing right now. Uh, we have three threshold questions we ask each and every one of our guests on this show and have done for the better part of three years. So, Craig, in no particular order, take these in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, uh, one of your favorite movies or your all-time favorite movie. And if you're going to indulge in a kind of music to make you happy, what kind of artist or genre would that most likely be? I'll go backwards. Penguin Cafe Orchestra. I love <laughs> That's their music. music, okay. That's music. <laughs> I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> the most influential movie is The Godfather. We mentioned regularly. And the the best book I've ever read is, is hard to say, but I would probably uh, – was one of the most uh, enlightening books in my career was the book that Laurie Garrett wrote called The Coming Plague. The second one was the one written by Amanda Ripley, The Unthinkable. Two books that really, uh, I think, gave me a lot of insight of how to think about my job. But it introduced me, Lori's book introduced me to the risk of pandemics and diseases when I was still a county emergency management director back in the 90s. Excellent. Greg Fugate, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Be well, be safe, and uh, keep in touch. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for The Takeout. We'll see you again next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.